It's Friday, September 15th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The UAW's on strike. The writers and actors also on strike, yet the Writers Guild and SAG have not collaborated to create a character as compelling as the head of the auto workers union. He's impassionate. He's profane. He's hard to take your eyes off of. He's Sean Fain, and he understands what makes for a good argument. When we get things like this from the company, and they want to sit there and talk about they're not asking for concessions or looking for concessions, everything they're looking for in this document is about concessions. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do with with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place, because that's where it belongs, the trash, because that's what it is. He also understands the idea of the commitment to the bit. And one thing I want to tell you is this trash can is overflowing with the bullshit that the big three continue to peddle. Now, as far as prop works go, that second trash can was clearly empty, but he pulled it off. The head of the actors union, Fran Drescher, needs to up her prop work a little bit. I'm not sure which strike will settle first. If I had to bet, I'd say the auto workers. In their case, the car makers clearly lose money if they can't pump out cars, whereas the Hollywood studios have so overprogrammed their streamers, they might welcome a respite. We know the sequel to Gung Ho or 8 Mile will be especially unlikely in this environment. And drive-ins, if drive-ins weren't already dead, these simultaneous work actions would kill them. The auto workers are striking at three plants right now, each one of the big three car manufacturers. That's unprecedented to coordinate a strike. Seems pretty good. Somewhat ruthless strategy. There are only 13,000 of the 146,000 auto workers actually picketing right now, but the message is clear. And the profits are literally, not just symbolically, at stake for the car makers. The UAW has a strike fund of about $825 million, and we know it has an extra potential source of income should the used trash can market become robust. The automakers themselves have offered their workers raises between 17 and 20%. Fain and the workers are holding out for 36 At least those are tangible numbers. The writer's demands are more about number of writers in the room and assurances about AI. This is a case where the worker who has to screw in bolts and operate physical assembly lines has less to fear than the knowledge worker. Though AI and EV, electric vehicle technology, they're all rewriting the rules of American workers everywhere, not only those who are affiliated with somewhat powerful unions. On the show today, a major retirement. You thought I'd say mint. I I changed things up. But first, the myth of fingerprints. It's a Paul Simon song, but it's also a point that a lot of juries won't buy. But not all fingerprints are helpful in prosecuting crime. And when it comes to blood spatter or the worst, bite mark evidence, probably best not to call it evidence at all. My guest is M. Chris Fabricant. He is director of strategic litigation for the Innocence Project, and he spends his days trying to discredit evidentiary techniques that we've been giving too much credit to. He writes about it all in Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. And Chris Fabricant joins me next.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Chris Fabricant is the director of strategic litigation for The Innocence Project. He has written a book called Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. And as Chris tells the story, junk science is so pervasive and so insidious that it regularly, not only convicts people and puts them in jail, but makes them in danger of being killed by the state. Now, luckily, the death penalty has abated in years, but you get the sense that if not for that, things like blood splatter and bite marks would literally take people who have been said to commit crimes, put them on death row, and eventually take their lives. Chris, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So what you do with the Innocence Project is huge, and it's ambitious, and I know it's uh, very much themed in criminal justice reform, which goes beyond innocence, and I want to talk to you about that. But how big a problem is junk science? Is it that junk science has no leg to stand on, but isn't the major driver of injustice? Or is it that if you looked at, look at all the injustice that uh, people with lengthy jail sentences have to face, junk science is underneath a lot of it? Well, I would characterize junk science as a symptom of the larger disease of the criminal legal systems, you know, mass incarceration and, you know, racial justice issues that underlie all problems that are associated with the criminal legal system. So, Junk science is a very potent and pernicious influence on the system as a whole. And, you know, and I think that if you look really one of the things that you said right at the beginning was that, you know, that we that we are concerned, you know, about death penalty cases, you know, I mean, and, and that perhaps, you know, because there's been fewer executions than there had been previously. But, you know, as we sit here today, I have three clients on death row right now that have all been put there by junk science and some of the worst junk science that I've ever experienced. And in the criminal legal system, one of the things that's surprising to me, and it was surprising to me because, you know, I've been at the Innocence Project now for 11 years. And before that, I was only a New York lawyer. And so I didn't deal with capital cases, but now I have many capital cases. And one of the things that I found really surprising was that I have encountered some of the worst and more junk science in capital litigation than I have in any other field. And you would think it would be the opposite, but it's not true. And that we reach for it in these high stakes cases and we use it and then the state will defend it to the end. You know, and so we think about the the problem as it relates to wrongful conviction and some of the larger issues. You know, you have to really go back to the time before the Innocence Project existed, before forensic DNA analysis came online. And at that time, what most Americans believed was that our justice system, such that it is, was essentially infallible. And in that, yes, people were, you know, wrongful convictions happened, but they were a vanishing rare, vanishingly rare occurrence. And that with all the checks and balances associated with our, our system, and that it was very, very rare. And then 
forensic DNA analysis came on about, you know, in the, in the 90s. And yeah. what we learned for the first time, because you never knew what ground truth actually was. Right. You know, it was a jury's verdict. And when we started testing those verdicts against the truth serum that DNA is, and that we could actually know ground truth, what happened if somebody was actually there? What we found is that half of all wrongful convictions are attributable, at least in part, to the use of junk science. And we know how persuasive something science-y sounds, right? And this is why every advertisement, only sex sells better than science, right? Is that what we hear is that scientifically tested, clinically proven, right? That sells, right? And that's why jurors believe it. So it's a huge problem. First of all, what's the definition? What definition do you use for junk science? And I, I want to be clear about this, right? And I thank you for asking that because it's a, you know, it's a pejorative term for a lot of forensic analysts. You know, I mean, they don't like that term, and you can understand why. Yeah. And the way and I, I understand it, why you, as a defense attorney, would like that term <laughs> to be propagated. Okay, with that in mind. The, uh, but that said, you know, I mean, nobody relies on valid and reliable science more than the Innocence Project does to free innocent people. So at the same time, we recognize the problem with junk science, which I've defined in my book as subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. And what it means is that there are no empirical studies that support the so-called expert opinion, and that it's usually based mostly on training and experience received wisdom that's passed down in kind of guild-like structures, no measurements are actually taken. You know, I mean, and if like, you know, your listeners that have a, a background in science will understand that all science, even social sciences, measure things, right? That's the fundamental function is that you're, that's why you have controlled samples and you have randomized sampling and you're going to measure this against a control, right? Yes. Or if you're deciding whether or not two things, quote unquote, match, right? Like a fingerprint, then, you know, there are no measurements taken to establish, well, you know, this, this fingerprint, you know, the, that this loop or this whirl is this many millimeters um, wide and that we're going to match that up to this latent print in the crime scene. And we have a measurement threshold that we decide that, okay, that's a match. That doesn't happen. This is yeah. just eyeballed. And when you have that kind of test, and you don't have any shields for the biasing influence that um, when you're making a subjective judgment like this, right, whether or not, you know, a bullet was fired by a particular gun or a shoe print was made by a particular shoe or a latent fingerprint matches a particular person. All of these kind of trace evidence um, assays, forensic assays, rely on human judgment. Right. And judgment is fallible. Of course, humans are fallible, but it's presented to juries as infallible, and it's not. Right. So science, some of the standards of science is that the results be replicable, that other experts trained in the process get consistent results, etc. However, it does seem to me from reading your book that there's a continuum of junkiness. Um, and so yes. uh, let's talk about the cover of your book, Teeth Bite Mark where would you put this? And this has caused a lot of your clients to go to jail, a lot of people uh, overall in America to go to jail. The bite mark on the body matches this guy's teeth. How would you characterize the junkiness of bite mark science and maybe compared to fingerprints? Bite marks are the poster child for junk science. There's no, there's no way that 
bite mark evidence can be done reliably under any circumstance by any expert whatsoever. It should never have been introduced in the legal system. And, you know, I've spent the last decade trying to root it out of the legal system. And, you know, it's still admissible in all 50 states today, despite over 40 wrongful convictions and indictments attributable to this little known um, forensic technique. Fingerprints, if you're talking about a scale of trace evidence, is the top. Right. Fingerprints can be um, very reliable, you know, been successfully used to identify people for hundreds of years. The problem is, and this is more of uh, is the quality of evidence that you have. And when we're talking about fingerprint evidence, we're talking about latent prints at crime scenes. Right. These aren't the deliberately rolled prints that you find, you know, in, in police blotters or something like that. These are smudges from crime scenes. And what we don't know. One is that we don't even know as a scientifically validated fact that all fingerprints are unique. Right. I think they probably are. But, but we haven't the done issue... the test on all 7 billion of us. Sorry, right. on all 70 billion of us, probably 69.99 <laughs> given how many people are missing fingers, but go ahead. Indeed. So, but what we don't know is how similar these prints are. And that really matters when you're talking about somebody making a subjective judgment about whether or not these two things match. And we don't know how much information you need to have reliable, that you can say reliably that we know that if we have X amount of information that we have successfully defined how much we need to make the match. And more importantly, or equally important, is the bias, is that there are no efforts in, you know, in all other sciences, yeah. the influence of cognitive bias is well known and efforts are made to mitigate its influence. And in forensics, this is almost never done. So we should do this a little bit. I think it's a service. Let's talk about just the general junkiness of certain uh, techniques. We've established that bite marks, totally junky. I think we've established that fingerprints have some scientific validity, though there's a lot of subjectivity and interpretation questions. Blood spatter, how junky is that? Right. So spatter evidence um, is not totally without merit, but as a general matter, the people that engage in it are technicians that have had one 40-hour course and don't understand fluid dynamics, don't, under, don't even take into account gravity with the measurements that they're taking, don't understand trigonometry in the way that you would really have to do. And you can't reconstruct an entire crime scene based on, you know, some blood spatter. There's, you know, some things that can be said. It's just grossly overstated all the time. How junky is handwriting analysis? Handwriting analysis, particularly when you're not talking about signature comparisons, you're talking about general handwriting analysis, it's um, not very reliable. You know what I mean? And the, uh, um, there have been many wrongful convictions attributable you know, to you know, bad handwriting analysis. Signatures are a little bit better um, on doing that. You know what I mean? Because you're trying to replicate, trying, yeah. Right. You know, and things like hair microscopy is junk science and shaken baby syndrome diagnoses are junk science and old arson investigation techniques are junky. The historical cell phone tower evidence is often grossly overstated on the precision. Historical. It's gotten better and more precise now. In some ways, yes, yeah. um, it has. You know, I mean, and what and the. Um, you know, and what we get, you know, more and more and, you know, in the, the paperback edition of the book that's coming out uh, very soon has an update that talks about emerging technology. Yeah. And one of the things that's very concerning um, that we see more and more of, you know, and we've been talking about many of the traditional forensic techniques that, to be clear, that are still used every day in criminal courts 
um, now is emerging technology that is increasingly developed by private companies. And then we know that private companies are not in business to advance justice, right? They're in business to make money. And what happens with these kind of black box technology, things like ShotSpotter that's alleged to be able to detect gunshots, you know what I mean, and, and hasn't been subject to really serious scientific scrutiny, is that when they increasingly in modern forensics is that the witness that's taking the stand is a computer, it's a black box. And the only way that to test the reliability of that black box is to open it up and give it to independent experts to examine the source code and the algorithms to detect flaws. And what has happened, and that's your Sixth Amendment right to confront witnesses against you, right? It's one of our core principles. And what happens is that when defense attorneys make those motions, the courts have many times elevated proprietary company rights or trade secrets above the Sixth Amendment and, re and not require those to be turned over. And that is a fundamentally an outrage. It's wrongful convictions waiting to happen. And we see this again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have, you know, when Sony sues Apple, they turn the source codes over under protective orders to the other side's independent scientists. And they don't do that in the criminal justice system where life and liberty is actually at issue. Right. Right. I mean, we're seeing that in the Trump documents case there, even though these are sensitive materials that you can't just let anyone know there are procedures when the courts determine that it's important enough to clear these documents is one of the reasons why it's taking a while. But there's a way to do it is the point. And when it comes to things like ShotSpotter, they're just not interested in doing it. Yeah, they will. The companies don't want to expose their products to that type of scrutiny if they don't have to. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, we see the facial recognition technology just two days ago, a pregnant black woman was wrongfully identified through facial recognition technology. And every known case of wrongful identification using FRT is involved black people. You know what I mean? I mean, and how like, you know, bitter irony is that, you know I mean? Considering how fundamentally racist our criminal justice system is and that these same companies often will not use and will not turn over their data for scrutiny. And also with a lot of these techniques, defense attorneys aren't even made aware that they're being used yeah. and that they're using these investigative stages and then not turned over to the defense. So, you know, our goal at the Innocence Project is always to go out of business, right? We don't want to be necessary anymore. And sadly, you know, what we see with emerging technology is that, you know, we're creating clients for us for the next 20 years. Yeah. So there is a civil liberties argument I'm sure you have some sympathy for about government collecting databases of things like DNA or maybe even facial recognition technology. But on the other hand, hasn't some, haven't some of those databases cleared clients, uh, if nothing else, by finding the actual guilty party? Yeah, you know, the civil, liber uh, civil liberties implications um, of huge biometrical databases are personally terrifying to me. I... Um, but yes, I mean, and we have through um, familial searches and through um, uh, genetic genealogy searches exonerated innocent people, you know what I mean? And that, that has happened, you know what I mean? And, and that's a, a wonderful correction of a miscarriage of justice. It's a thorny, thorny issue. I don't have the answer to that. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the way that, that 
you know, that we tend to look at it is that, you know, the genie is out of the bottle here. This is going to be used. It's being used, you know, so if we can use it for good, then we should. Yeah. So over the last couple of years, few years, as we lived through the pandemic, science began to be questioned in ways that hadn't before. And maybe the purveyors of so-called science with a capital S uh, pointing to their not totally solid conclusions and saying it's science, shut up. Maybe they're part of that. But putting that aside, have you discovered in juries or even in uh, appellate bodies uh, more of a skepticism of science or more of a willingness to accept junk science? Yeah, you know, I mean, what I have found, yes, it did. the short answer is that I think that um, the pandemic in particular did, you know, weaponize, you know, the, you know, crackpot theories, you know what I mean? And, and you know, I mean, because people were, you know, experiencing something that was, you know, once in a lifetime and, and generational problem that only science could solve. The, what I have found in the justice system, by and large, is really decisions are made for toward a typical or for a particular outcome and that most judges and appellate courts are similar um the supreme court you know i mean what they're doing is trying to limit the ability to review any convictions and to have anything other than just a trial period end of story so they're they're playing a longer game right you know i mean and and thinking systemically but outside of that court overwhelmingly it's about the criminal defendant that's in the dock and what the most judges are considering is that they believe this defendant is guilty that the um and they're very unwilling to take away a tool that the prosecutor has at their disposal to convict a guilty person doesn't care about the integrity of the science one way or the other cares about a bad guy going to prison and that's really you know be all end all on the decision making front. And the idea that those, you know, I mean, and I write about this, like the first bite mark case in that you're I was able to track it and find it. And like, this is what happened in this case. And you can see the judge making this determination, right? Because the guy, guy named, um, what was his name? Walter something, um, Walter Marks. Walter Marks, who probably killed his landlord. There was a lot of evidence that suggested that, but they didn't have any solid physical evidence. And this is true with so many junk science cases is that they're circumstantial and you need something physical to tie them to the crime and decided that I'm going to admit this evidence. I'm going to admit it because, you know, even though any said out loud, there's never been any research in, in this field and we don't really, you know, there's no kind of authority on it, you know, but I can see with my own eyes that, you know, this is a bite mark and these teeth match and the jury is not going to be confused. And that became the germinal case and led to every court in the country citing back to that case for the proposition that was admissible. And every court that has since looked at bite mark evidence and had me come in, which is I will challenge this anywhere in the country, I've flown all over the country challenging this evidence, is that the court will make this decision based on precedent and the fact that they think that the client is guilty. So. You know, I mean, it's it's extremely frustrating that way. 
Chris Fabricant, M. Chris Fabricant, if we're being scientific, is the Innocence Project's Director of Strategic Litigation. He is the author of the book, now out in paperback, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. Chris, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. How perfect a metaphor is Mitt Romney sitting in a recliner in a house he didn't want to buy, in a town he doesn't want to live in, eating a fish he doesn't like because it was gifted by a colleague from a party he doesn't want to belong to. With the salmon, it's made palatable by surrounding it with enough condiment and bread to mask the flavor. But with the party, Romney can't get away from the idea that it rotted from the head down. It's all an oh-so-perfect excerpt in a bio that Romney didn't just participate with. He basically commissioned, asking his chronicler over the last decade, The Atlantic's McKay Coppins, because Romney acknowledged he couldn't be objective about his own life. That's not only an unusual admission for a politician, an appeal to objectivity is increasingly unknown to journalists like former Washington Post editor Len Downey. But not Coppins, who writes, quote, Romney, who didn't have many real friends in Washington, ate dinner alone there most nights watching Ted Lasso or Better Call Saul as he leafed through briefing materials. On the first day of my visit, he showed me his freezer, which was full of salmon fillets that had been given to him by Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska. He didn't especially like salmon, but found that if he put it on a hamburger bun and smothered it in ketchup, it made for a serviceable meal. Lately, Trump loyal Republicans have been trying to make a meal of Romney. And not just his Senate colleagues, after he was the only Republican senator to vote to convict during the first impeachment. There was also the folks back home who screamed at Romney as he tried to address a Utah Republican convention. Aren't you embarrassed? These were supposed to be his people, but it was clear they're all in the thrall of Donald Trump. So Romney has been trying to think of ways to thwart another Trump presidency. He desperately wants Trump to be exposed, or at least held to account. Telling Coppins, quote, I was afraid that Biden, in his advanced years, would be incapable of making the argument. Which brings up a point. It's not just blind Trump backers who see President Biden's age as a legitimate concern. Senators who have assessed the president more closely than the rest of us and who want him to be able to combat Trump worry about his ability to do so. Biden's deficits have been exaggerated, but so has the case that Biden doesn't have troubling deficits. So Romney has met with Joe Manchin. Maybe, he says, they run on or support a stop the stupid ticket. I wonder if Mitt Romney's really reading the room on this one. The prior two Republican presidential candidates before Trump were John McCain, the maverick, and Mitt Romney, the institutionalist. But then Romney, simply by attempting to stay true to the republicanism he'd always known, the republicanism his father knew, became the real maverick. More an apostate, maybe, than a maverick. And now Romney, having announced he's not running for re-election and believing he has a dozen or so years left on this earth, wonders about how to save his country, his party, and a bit of his legacy. Like his unloved entree on most nights, he knows what it's like to swim upstream. 
But as a Republican of rectitude and a sense of duty, it's pretty clear that his spawn will be five eerily handsome sons, not a political movement, and maybe even not a significant slice of a political party that can't seem to recognize a pretty easy choice between decency and decay. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeepero, And thanks for listening.